He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, May 28, 2022. Happy Memorial Day, happy summer, but it's not that happy. We had the massacre at the Uvalde Elementary School. We have to talk about that, but we have upbeat stuff too. Perfect guest, Terry Fry. He covered Columbine, wrote a book about Frank DeAngelis, interviewed work with Patrick Ireland, the boy in the window, Columbine, what lessons have been learned, what lessons have been ignored, forgotten, why in the world don't we have an assault weapon ban, Terry and I talk about that, we talk about a whole host of things, Colorado Media, his great book, Olympic Affair, involving Glenn Morris of Colorado State fame, Olympic gold decathlete from Simla, Colorado, Lenny Reifenstahl, Nazi propaganda filmmaker. She claimed she was independent. What a book Terry Fry has researched and written. You're going to hear all about it, but first we converse about the week's events with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, who has the perfect song to make you feel better to move on past this spiritual crisis. This song, Love Has a Way, here is our troubadour, Dave Gunders, followed by Terry Fry. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Troubadour. How are you, Craig? I'm a little angry right now because my dog seems to like you better than me. And look, he's squeaking his toy. It's all for you. No, he loves you, Craig. I know he loves me, but he gets more excited to see you. And I don't know what you've ever done for him, really. You hold his leash while I pick up his poop. Maybe that's it. <laughs> that could be it. Happy Memorial Day. Happy summer. Thank you. I guess you. the expression is to have a meaningful Memorial Day. And yes. We know the great Henry Gunders served in uh, World War II with honor, 10th Mountain Division. Yes, Do you think they- about somebody on Memorial Day? Do you know somebody who uh, passed away serving the country? 
Well, I think of all the veterans, I mean, um, I probably don't give, give as much time as I should, quite honestly, Craig. Well, neither do I. Yeah, but I interviewed yeah. Terry Fry. I have a humdinger of a show because Terry Fry's dad, Jerry Fry, great assistant coach for the Broncos, coach at Oregon. He was a legend in the football business, but he was a fighter pilot at a really young age, and he served with a guy named Dave Schreiner, who played on a Wisconsin football team. And Dave Schreiner, he lost his life. So we're dedicating this show to Dave Schreiner, thanks to Terry Fry, our special guest. I don't know how you do it with the perfect song every week, but then again, I get great guests. Terry Fry, with that military history, he is perfect. He's perfect as a guy for this show because he's also a big avalanche guy, and the Avs are in a heck of a series. He's written a book about white supremacy. It happens to deal with World War II. Lainey Reifenstahl, the famous German movie maker, had a relationship with the Colorado athlete, the gold medal winner, decathlete Glenn Morris. So it really is something else. But Terry Fry worked for decades for the Denver Post, Rocky Mountain News. He's still covering the avalanche. He's got a great talk radio show. What a great guest, and he also covered Columbine. He's written extensively about it. I covered Columbine. I had to go on national TV and try to explain what happened. It was new then. Everybody knew since Columbine that if you have a shooter in the school, you just go in and you save the kids. Now it appears there was an 80-minute delay in Uvalde, Texas. Unconscionable, terrible but you know what really is going on there, Dave Gunders? Tell me. One, bad decision-making, probably poor communications, but a level of cowardice. There were 19 cops in the building, and this guy is shooting an AR-15. And, you know, you can have a police shield. You can have body armor. That's not going to help. You can hide behind a filing cabinet, and it'll go right through it and kill you. You can't have weapons of war like that in a civilized society. And let alone to have an 18-year-old buy two of them legally at age 18. Craig, it, it's, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, on every aspect. I, I just heard about, before I came over to sit with you and interview, um, about this, this, this delay. And I, I, like, you know, I like to hold off until I have facts to make judgment. But this just sounds, that's what came to mind to my mind too, is cowardice. I mean, that's, that part of it is really infuriating. It's like a whole new, terrible um, revelation on what has already been a really tough week. But um, as far as him going in and buying those things, the laws that allow that, they need to be rescinded. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. These are weapons of war. What else is someone going to use them for? You know, you have other possible weapons. Automobile, good example. Well, you can't rent a car until you're 25. There are age restrictions on things. And the only industry I know with immunity to the degree the gun makers, I don't know anything like that. The Congress people, legislatures give them immunity. Why? They market it to kids. It's got to end the way cigarettes did, right? We have to regulate, tax it. These assault weapons, they have no utility. I'm just, I've been part of this issue for a long time. 
And I shouldn't say they have no utility. Like if you have a feral pig on a property you have in Louisiana, maybe it's good because you have to shoot the pig from a distance and those things are slippery. I've heard that explanation. Oh, please. And maybe once in a while it's used in legitimate self-defense, but I doubt it. 30-round magazines outlawed by Hickenlooper in Colorado, a company up and left. But you know what? That killer down in Texas, he had many 30-round magazines. We were right to get rid of them. These are war weapons, and we need to bar it. And public sentiment is there, but uh, the base for Donald Trump opposes it. It will be interesting And for those who say, well, you need good guys with guns, well, it didn't work in Texas. They had a lot of them just waiting in the hall. And now you're going to have teachers with guns? I don't think so. Then we have to do something about AR-15s. There are good solutions for hardening the target and all of that. But let's not uh, pretend like we can't do anything about assault weapons because we can. And that's what's got me worked up this week. And I tweeted about it. And I know him, John Caldera, he had me on his show once, and he can be a nice guy, but he's bond paid for by the gun industry, and he goes on and he says, I used to feel like Craig Silverman did, and now I've learned more. Yeah, he got paid, and I like getting paid too, but you know, in my talk radio days, I would not do an ad for a gun shop. I just would not. I don't want to sell assault weapons or any weapons. I'm not saying people can't protect themselves in their homes. But my God, so many crimes start with a stolen gun from a burglary or a car break-in, and then it's used against an innocent. I've got a lot of thoughts about gun control, as you can tell. And in my studio, there's me back in the 90s with Roy Romer and Jim Brady, and we got some legislation to keep handguns away from juveniles, the same kind of thing we're talking about now. So I'm not new to this issue. It gets me worked up, too. I'm worked up. I mean, it's a no-brainer. It's just, and it's cloaked in this ridiculous ideology of of constitutional rights. I mean, right to bear arms and a right to get a weapon of war like that. I mean, you can't go and get a tank. I mean, you, you know, this is crazy. The fact that we can't as a society make some make some changes. And, you know, the sad thing is that may or may not even help what's, what is an underlying cause of this, which is, you know disturbed individuals it's both i mean we, right. we got to look at both but, yes. but you shouldn't take guns out of the out of the dialogue right. you know in 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 discussing you know the root problem which is mental illness or emotional anguish or who knows what i have emotional anguish and mental illness after looking at the pictures of those precious elementary school kids i can't even think about it i'm like you i want to avoid the news mm-hmm. It's too hard to watch. And now that I, now that I heard that the cops were out there mm-hmm. waiting for some tactical unit or something, that that infuriates Wait till me. Wait, you, you heard know? the kids making nine one one calls repeatedly. Where are you? We need you. They're killing us. And then the cops said, "Yell help if you need help." A girl yelled help. The guy went over and shot her. I mean, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. That's why you don't need hindsight. You just rush in. And you take the guy out as fast as possible, especially when you're hearing shots. And they were handcuffing parents who wanted to rush in. They were tackling uh, men, handcuffing women. One got away and ran into the building and got her kids out. Some cops did it for their own kids. It was a mess. It's all going to come out. 
The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, no surprise, lied to America saying, oh, the brave cops did this, that. And now he's saying, I was misled. I'm incensed. Well, get your shit together, man. Come out against assault weapons, and maybe somebody will have faith in you. But for now, I'm with Beto. You know, I was with Beto in Texas on uh, the voter rights rally. So was Willie Nelson. I've taken my measure of the guy, and I like him a lot better than Greg Abbott. And Lauren Boebert built a career out of coming up to be little Beto when he came to Aurora after our massacre. That Lauren Boebert, she's a Colorado embarrassment. I'm just droning up, but we're all worked up. I, you know, Texas, we we got to have Beto win down there. I I hope so. You know, you think about a firearm like uh, AR-15. Doesn't it all come down to utility? I mean, in the life of an average AR-15, it's going to do more good or more harm. Let's just take the product as a generic. Let's start with Uvalde. Okay, we've got. 19 dead elementary school kids, a town ruined, uh, America on the precipice, two teachers dead, Irma Garcia, her her husband Joe died the next day of a heart attack, leaving four kids. So let, let's add up all the damage done by that AR-15. Now let's balance it against the utility of an AR-15 in America this week. You think it's close? It's zero. There is no utility. Well, maybe, maybe some guy sports. shot a feral pig somewhere in Louisiana, okay, that was bothering his crops, you, something like that. Yeah, okay? you, don't, you don't need to hunt a feral pig with 30 bu- bullets firing at, at rapid speed. Well, you're not a feral then. pig farmer. All right. So, um, but no, still, I get it's your just, point. It's not even close. And uh, you got guys like Ken Buck, Terry Fry brings him up. What a great interview with Terry Fry. Who feels like we do? He lives up in northern Colorado. Ken Buck, who I played basketball against, Ivy League educated, has an AR-15 on his wall in his congressional office. I think it's painted red, white, and blue. It's like Lauren Boebert. She did a Christmas card with her and all her kids posing with long guns. Do you understand that mentality? Is that what Christmas is about? I don't understand that mentality or the general mentality of of tying it to our rights. This is a great talk, though, because your song, just like Terry Price Buck, oh, my God, Olympic Affair, it gets sexy. Yeah, I know you're going to like this. Now, I told you on our walk this week, Glenn Morris, under-celebrated Colorado athlete, won the decathlon, 1936 Olympics, super handsome. I put him up on YouTube. There are film clips of this guy. As you might imagine, from a guy who could win the decathlon, he is well-structured, but he has a handsome face. He went to Hollywood. Unfortunately, he couldn't act, and his life kind of fell apart. But not before he had an affair with Lini Rafenstahl over there in Berlin. She wanted him, and he he said, well, I got a girlfriend back in Colorado, but... And that's documented. Then Terry let his imagination go. It's a great book. And I had learned a lot. And you wonder, you know, what you would do if you're not a Jew and you're over there and Lenny. And I don't know. It puts you into another world. And I needed that this week. And then your song did the same thing for me. Well, Love Has a Way is a song I wrote uh, some years back for for some very good friends who had a tragedy in their life. Uh, they lost their son, and it was uh, it was just such a 
um, difficult time. I, let me tell you a, just a quick story about this. My my the lyrics originally I I sang for my young Rachel who who was seven years old at the time, and she looked at me after she heard the song and she said, "Daddy, are you going to sing that song for your friends?" And I said, "Yes." And she goes. You can't do it. The lyrics are too sad. This is this is the story of, you know, this I looked at Rachel, I was about to explain to her how, you know, these these lyrics were meant to help them, you know, to heal them. And and then I thought, you know, she's right. And I and I I trashed those lyrics and wrote Love Has a Way. Including the line, No words can be spoken. No words can be spoken. Yeah. Anyway. Because it's, you, it's so sad that you know you'll crack up when you say it. It's why I can't watch these pictures of these little elementary school kids. Um, They're so beautiful. And it, the death of a child. It's it's awful. But anyway, one thing I do, I learned from that, from, that uh, from my childhood, and I've always reminded myself, it's like, when my daughter has something to say, listen to her. <laughs> so she might be a lot smarter than me. And is she singing background? On this, you when you're singing, you're not alone. I, yeah. There's a beautiful backup singer that's Rachel or Sarah. Yes, and um, I think it may have been both of them. It's beautiful. You know what movie this reminded me of? Which? Did you ever see Summer of 42? Jennifer O'Neill? Oh, 1971 coming-of-age yeah. movie? Right. A woman's... Husband's killed in the war. She takes comfort in a teenage boy nearby, and he enjoys it. But it's not, it's sort of like Terry's book. It's tasteful. Right. It's kind of sexy. Yeah. And I admit I was a teenager there, and I like Jennifer O'Neill, but it's like, what do you do when tragedy hits? What do you do when Uvalde happens after Buffalo, and we're worried about our country. We're despaired to the point where we can barely breathe. We can't even speak for fear that we're going to break. Well, there are things we can do. I mean, I, t- I take heart when I hear people talking about, you know, about how we find these, you know, what kind of indicators, you know. We talked about changing the gun laws, not taking gun rights away, but changing the gun laws. And, 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 you know, and things like the red, you know, the red flag laws and right. just paying attention. I Background mean, mo- check. Even though it's a huge country. And Safe you can, storage. Right. You can look at it like, oh, in a country this size, it's, you know, there's going to, this kind of thing will happen with a crazy person. But they're all surrounded by people who could see warnings. And I, I can't help but think that this will, if we really make an effort, we can make a difference. Good people need to come together. That's the message of your song. And it's kind of our religious tradition too when death happens, which well, every family, loss, death, there are rituals and people come over, a shiva process, come together. And I hope people in Uvalde are feeling that. And when people come together, there should be just a feeling of love. That's what your song is about. And again, Wouldn't be a Dave Gunder song without a reference to the sun and the rays of the sun, right? And you have the imagery of love can come through the darkest thing, and all it asks is you turn your face to it, right? Right. Yeah, flower can grow through concrete or whatever. It's possible with right ingredients, which is love and maybe some tears. And I don't know. I don't think we can just live in a fortress, We've got to do something about guns. The Constitution is not a suicide pact, now is it? 
You know, all it would take is the, a few of the right leaders that could turn the tide. And I'm talking about Republican leaders, you know, the governor of, of – imagine the governor of Texas saying, you know what, folks? You know, I've changed my mind. I'm still – a believer in gun rights, but these assault weapons, they have to go. You know, it could, he could start a wave. I, I do believe this, it could happen. Right. That's how change and, happens. And, and what could Beto O'Rourke do or say? But that was Beto's message when he walked up there. The time to do this was after Santa Fe and Springs. We had another school shooting. They had a church shooting. And then in uh, Beto's hometown of El Paso, there was a massacre at the Walmart with these kind of weapons. And it was about replacement theory, the thing that happened in Buffalo. And now it's reported that Donald Trump, when this happened on his watch, said, what are we going to do about assault weapons? But then he let it go. He didn't want to take on his base. But that's what we need, real leadership. Right. The base would come around. Yes, absolutely. They can be swayed. I changed my mind. Right. Trump could do it. And, And so could Greg Abbott. There would be some pushback from people on the far right, but... You know who agreed to come on my show? A few interesting people. I'm working on Jared Polis, Kyle Clark, Joe O'Day, Republican running for Senate. He went on Kaplan's show and said, you know what? I think Roe v. Wade was right. I'm a Republican, but that's the way I feel. Gosh, if that guy could win, then we could have a different Republican Party. Same thing on guns. I'll get him on. I'll ask him about that. Just assault weapons. We had less mass murders when we had an assault weapon ban. And guys like Caldero go on the radio and say, well, tell me what an assault weapon is. Nobody can define it. Well, Denver, Colorado did way back in the day. In fact, Punch, People United, No Children's Handguns. We wrote an amicus brief and we won. Denver's assault weapon ban is in force, and it lays out no AK-47s, no AR-15s. It names names them specifically, and it's been upheld, okay? We can outlaw these guns. It's constitutional, and I'm glad I got that off my chest. Can I just say you're a genius with this song? Because, God forbid, I ever die, and I guess I just said I will someday. I'd like this played at the reception, because it's not, it's like, Summer 42. I mean, it's sad, but you make it kind of upbeat the way you do things. You know, all right, if we can't even talk, it's unspoken, then all of a sudden you're dancing. I mean, you can feel it when you dance. You're right. like a flamenco artist in the middle of this song. What, <laughs> what inspired you? Or is it the tango? <laughs> the, the dance part, yeah, yeah. I guess just the, the idea of... Uh, of- being with others and, um, you know, letting the music be a part of healing. Right. And, yeah. I mean, you have such beautiful lines. You can feel it when you dance. And there's uh, that other haunting line that I thought might, you probably thought about this for a title, You're Not Alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. because that, you'll start singing. When you hear it, I'm going to shut up, let everybody hear the song. Listen a couple times. You'll start singing, you're not alone, you're not alone. Yeah. And then then you go into that dance. Anyway, let me shut up. Wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Anything else we should know about uh, Love Has a Way? And and, uh, it's a song for Deb. And on Memorial Day, how appropriate is that, too? That that is appropriate. Thanks for, uh, for having me on and... I appreciate it. It's a tough week.
It is a tough week, but you know what? You're not alone. You're over here with me, and look at Skyler. He's looking at you, not at me, proving what I said, <laughs> although he's touching my leg, not yours now. <laughs> anyway, it's good to have a studio where you can have your dogs. Thank you. Enjoy this. By our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Love has a way. way of healing the heart It strengthens the will when our spirit lies broken And no word can be spoken to ease the pain Love has a way of not letting go hope, yeah, you've got to have faith in the promises made with every new day. You're not alone, you're not alone, you're not alone.
It strengthens the will when our spirit lies broken and no word can be spoken. No word can be spoken to ease the During the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. This is a perfect guest for Memorial Day weekend. Terry Fry has written about uh, World War II, his father. We may get to all of that, but there are more pressing matters with Terry Fry. For example, the avalanche fighting for their life in the uh, pursuit of his Stanley Cup. He's a veteran of Colorado media, worked for years for the Denver Post. He's got a new gig on talk radio I just read his book, Olympic Affair, which distracted me mightily on this week that everybody needed it because Uvalde happened, and Terry Fry is uniquely equipped to talk about school shootings, too. So, Terry Fry, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Craig. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And your new gig, Talk Radio, Drive Time with Eric Goodman, Mile High Sports, that's got to be exciting. It's uh, 4 to 6, Monday through Friday, on milehighsports.com is one way to hear it. It's 98.1 FM, and we're we're looking forward to plowing ahead and breaking new ground to talk radio. You know, terryfry.com is a good website. You have at tfry on Twitter. That's cool. Tell me about the name Fry, F-R-E-I. I looked that up, too. You piqued a lot of curiosities in me. It means free, right? The background is Swiss. Uh, oh. My my national my uh, background is is partly Norwegian on my mother's side and Swiss and Danish on the on my father's side. 
Well, everybody likes a little Danish, especially in the morning. <laughs> but uh, what about the name fried? Do I have it right? It means free yes. in English? Yes. That's got to be a great last name. Um, yeah, it is. It's interesting that you immediately don't want to be, you know, no, it's not the word German. Was Is that a conscious thing? I mean, I just no. came off reading your book. No, it, it's... Uh, it, it's uh, a common name in Switzerland, and where they speak in many places, Schweizerdeutsch. So, uh, no, it's just uh, uh, my my background is 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 a mixture, of course. And my mother's my on my mother's side, it's Norwegian. So I even speak a little bit of Norwegian. I will schnucker Norsk. Do you sprechen Sie Deutsch? Do you speak German? No, I do not. Me neither. That was the extent of it right there. On your talk radio show, gosh, I would have liked to do talk radio sports. You know, I did a lot with Darren McKee. He would fill in for Capless, and then I'd be to the right of him. And D-Mac and I had a great time. And our show tilted a little too much towards sports. I had a partner, Dan Capless, who went a little mishugana. That's a Yiddish word. I guess that's part German. Um, he went mishugana for a guy. Dan's even in one of my books, 77, Denver, the Broncos, and the Coming of Age, because he was student body president at the University of Colorado at the time. Oh, that pisses me off, because I'm a native Denverite. He comes from Chicago. He gets in your book. <laughs> I'm a lifelong Broncos fan. My God, my brother should have been in, in it. He drove with Eddie Perlmutter, yeah, Congressman Eddie Perlmutter from CU Law School down to New Orleans uh, to witness the sad ending of that. You've written a book about that. Let's get all the plugs in, which is easy because terryfry.com is the link to all of your books, right? And, and a lot of other work of mine. You can pretty much follow my career and uh, follow my book career there. It's T-E-R-R-Y-F-R-E-I.com. And I've done seven books and two collaborations, and, and I'm darn proud of all of them. You should be. And now that I've finished Olympic Affair, I want more. I think I'm going to go to the 77 Broncos book, but that pissed me off a little because I was trying to make the point that Capless went a little mashuga <laughs> for a guy named uh, Tim Tebow. Maybe you heard of him. And then yes, yes, I did. I, I also thought that he should get in just for the entertainment value to replace Kyle Orton. And I'd show up at the sports <laughs> press conferences and I would... Uh, go after Coach John, you know Fox. I don't like to name call, but you know was in every sentence of his. You know what I mean. You know this. You well, if we know, anyway, that's yes, part. I know. Yes, you remember John, you know Fox. Um, but we got Tim Tebow on the field. Honestly, Capitalist and I did. So that's the book that should be written. But back to you and your uh, balancing of what to talk about. We, we're almost all current events, and honestly, I'm so glad I'm not doing afternoon drive to hear that bullshit about, oh, if we need more good people with guns, and now we're watching what happened in Texas. But before we get to that, let's not talk about Texas. Let's talk about Wheat Ridge High School. Give us a little bit of your background. Were you born here in Metro Denver? I was born in Salem, Oregon, when my father was a football coach oh, at Willamette, right. Willamette University, and he had been a high school coach after the war. He had been a P-38 fighter pilot during World War II and took uh, three years out in the middle of his career at the University of Wisconsin 
to fly 67 missions in a P-38 fighter as a reconnaissance pilot. His job was to fly in a lone or with one, one other plane, one other pilot over enemy targets in advance of the bombing runs. So that, that was uh, his background. And he ended up going out to Oregon as a high school football coach and then climbing the ladder. To, he coached two high schools in, in Portland, Grant, and Lincoln. Went to Willamette University for a couple of years. And then joined the staff at the University of Oregon in 1955. And he was on the staff at Oregon from 1955, the year I was born, through the 1971 season. So it was 17 seasons at the University of Oregon and the final five as head coach. So that's, I was very fortunate as a coach's kid to not have to move around. I grew up in Eugene and uh, started started my high school days at South Eugene High School. And when my dad came, left Oregon to come to the Denver Broncos as offensive line coach in 1972 with John Ralston, I came with, I came with him early, actually, and uh, walked, walked into Wheat Ridge High School in February 1972 and immediately was playing baseball or after the basketball tournament was over, was playing baseball with Dave Logan, who was the pitcher and shortstop, and I was the catcher, and I, I still hold the uh, state record that hasn't been broken because, because of what Dave Logan did for me. I set the state record for most pass balls. Way to go. So then I went to the University of Colorado, double major in journalism and history. I had worked at the Rocky Mountain News in college. After graduating, I uh, showed my gratitude for that by going to work for the Denver Post uh, four days after I graduated after my last class at CU, worked at the Denver Post for uh, from 77 to 85, was Oregonian sports columnist in Portland, going back to my home state from 85 to 93. Then I worked at the Sporting News as a national football writer, mostly did uh, profiles. My job was mainly writing profiles of players who would end up in the Hall of Fame, Emmett Smith, Thurman Thomas, many, Jerry Rice, many, many more spent Interesting time with Jerry Rice in Mississippi and Emma Thomas in Texas and and enjoyed that job very much. But I came back to the Denver Post in 1995 when the Avalanche arrived. And it was uh, it was a time to make that change to come back to the newspaper business. And so I was at the Denver Post for a lot of years and now uh, did an enjoyable stint at the Greeley Tribune where I was pretty much handed carte blanche. Whatever I wanted to write about, I wrote. And now I would say I'm writing for Colorado Hockey now as kind of a sideline as I continue book and screenplay projects. And so the the seven books out there that I start my first book didn't come out until 2002 because I was being very stubborn and wanted to be a novelist. And finally realized the way to break in as a book writer was doing nonfiction. So I've done five nonfiction books, uh, two novels, The Witch's Season and Olympic Affair, the five no, the five nonfiction books. Our Horns, Hogs, and Nixon coming. Third down and a war to go about my father's college football team all going off to war. 77, Denver, the Broncos in the coming of age. March 1939, before the madness, about the very first NCAA basketball tournament and its champions. And uh, playing piano in a brothel, which is kind of a collection of memoirs and some of my work. So those are the... Those are my books. I, I helped Frankie DeAngelis with his book. They call me Mr. D. And I also helped Patrick Ireland, Columbine's Boy in the Window, with his memoirs. That, that hasn't been published to date, but it's a, just a riveting story and somebody should publish it. So I, I'm doing book projects. 
I was commissioned and did three screenplay adaptations for my books. Olympic Affair now is in front of the Hollywood people, and uh, we're hopeful there will be some resolution and it'll move forward as a movie. Nice. It's a natural for a movie. What part do you want to play? I was in a movie once, Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, and I got to play myself. But I was no part of that uh, story back in the day. So what... That wasn't I, much of a stretch I, for I, you. I, I'm too tall to be Marty Glickman. Who was the other Jewish runner who got snubbed? Sam Stiller. Maybe Sam I Stiller. could do Sam Stiller. Was yeah, he that's, taller? That's a, I, I think a little bit, not too much. So that's an integral part of the story is the exclusion of the two Jewish runners from the uh, U.S. relay team. Jesse Owens ended up getting his fourth gold medal. Oh, I've got uh, so many questions about that book. Let's take it. Do, in do, a, you think Charlie, do you think Charlize Theron is too old to play Lenny Riefenstahl? Yes. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, isn't she in her 50s now? I mean, yeah, Lainey lied about her age, right? We find that yeah, out. She said she, she said she was 24. She was actually 33. Right. But uh, Glenn didn't care. Wow, I have feelings about Glenn. We're going to get to Olympic Affair, and what a movie it would make. I'd like to invest in that, and I'm ready for your other books, but we need to talk about something that's on my mind, and you are smart, and you've thought about it. You've been primarily a sports guy, but you write about current events. You've had jobs where they pay you to do that, sort of like me at the Colorado Sun. I can write about whatever. I occasionally write about sports. I like that. Last week I wrote about CU, a hero, George Norlin, out of history. And I yeah, love really those good. explorations. And that's what you did for me and Glenn Morris. Uh, and honestly, you know, Glenn Morris, for me, I was part of that Ward Churchill situation. He had a cohort out of Metro named Glenn Morris, and it kind of swallowed the name. Yeah. You know what I mean? But. Yes, Glenn Morris of decathlon winning fame, 1936. We're going to get to him, but I remember Columbine, and I was in the middle of doing a lot of Jean Benet coverage on the national level, and Geraldo and his people called me when Columbine happened, and I was live on national TV that night trying to explain the inexplicable, but now it's not inexplicable. We know... Part of what's going on here, 18-year-olds with huge weapons, and we're not going to stop 18-year-olds from existing, but we can stop them or try to stop them from having huge weapons of war. That's how I feel about Uvalde. I've been part of this gun control debate in my studio here. I have a picture of the special session with Roy Romer. We brought James Brady to town. We passed a new law, an organization I helped found called Punch. People United, no children's handguns. We had kids killing kids, and we did something, and it was effective. And then Joe Biden and others put in an assault weapon ban, and unconscionably, America let it expire. And Colorado needs an assault weapon ban Denver, Colorado has an assault weapon ban, and all those bullshit artists, I'm sorry, John Caldaria, but you take money from the NRA at the Independence Institute, and all those people who shill for guns, come on now, Terry Fry, I'm glad I got that off my chest. 
Well, I was in Greeley, uh, and Ken Buck is the U.S. rep up there. He's, he's kind of respected in, in some circles, but he, uh, at last check, had an AR-15 on his office wall as some kind of badge of honor. And, and that's why I love a podcast, so I can say, I'm not going to say the F word, but I'm going to say, that's bullshit, Ken. Come on. And Lauren Boebert, don't get me started. That picture of her kids on a Christmas card. I'm not a Christian, but is that how you do it? Well, her latest is that that we didn't try to ban airplanes after 9-11. She's an idiot. You know what? I'll defend her. She's uneducated. She doesn't even know. But Ken Buck, that guy's got to know better. I know him. I play basketball against him in the lawyer's league. He's Ivy League educated. Ken Buck is Ivy League Ivy League educated at I forget which one. I want to say Princeton, but I'm not sure. See, I've never even talked to you about these things. I don't know if you agree with me or you don't agree with me. But... Oh, I'm I'm pretty much a militant on gun on seeing gun control laws. Uh, probably there's a point at which we have to be practical and get done what we can't get done. But I, I I'm the idealist standing on the sidelines and saying we should go for an absolute. And I'll tell you, and, these, you know, you yeah. know, and my and, and my political leanings, you know, people get confused sometimes. I call myself a woe liberal because I'm a liberal who will say woe, mm-hmm. and I will say that's that's a little that's too much. We've gone too far, and so now, that, how, that's how my. Are you, that's, how are you spelling woe? Because we have Senator Ackerman. He, he wrote a w- book called The Opposite of Woe. In fact, six years ago, I was at a book signing with him, John Hickenlooper, but. Are you, I think you're saying W-H-O-A? Correct. I thought you were making a play on woke, your no. woe instead. You leave no. the K W-H-O-A. Right. No, I got no, it. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatic, moderate liberal who will say woe. And I think one of the weaknesses in, the liber, in liberalism is the inability and the, and the reluctance and the refusal to tell those among our ranks who go to, who, who go to extremes that are counterproductive we don't say whoa. You know, I think we need to do it more often. Now that's going to come off wrong in the sense of that throwing me in a right wing side of the ledger. It shouldn't at all. I'm actually, uh, uh, you know, my, my first couple of articles as a journalist was when I was a junior in high school at South Eugene High School, and I wrote about the Vietnam veterans against the war. I was militantly against the Vietnam War, even as a sixteen-year-old high school student. My second story ever. Uh, uh, the first story was about the v- local Vietnam veterans against the war branch. My second story ever was somebody coming in to address them and others at the University of Oregon Herb Memorial Union, and his name was John Kerry. So my second story ever when I was 16 was about this this uh, former leader at the time of the Vietnam veterans against the war, John Kerry. I don't show many people that story because I was 16 years old and it was dreadful. But uh, I show a little piece of it on my website in several places. Oh, that's cool. I was not on the paper at GW. I was too busy playing baseball, basketball, and golf. But at CC, I was sports editor, but I'd write about other things, including Dick Gregory came and spoke at Colorado College, and he was so full of conspiracy theories. And then I wrote, kind of like your style, I pretended I met him at the Golden Bee just to find out who they were, you know, all these. The Golden they, Bee at the... Uh, yeah, the Golden Bee at the Broadmoor. At the resort, yeah. Yeah, I was always resentful of hockey because I played basketball at CC. We had pretty much zero attendance. My parents were always there, but 
And the hockey, you know, they had sold out crowds, got all the beautiful women. So I was resentful of hockey and still am. Did you ever play the piano at the Golden V? Um, no, because I'm not a piano player, but I have been in the Golden Bee. Isn't that a good setting for a fictional yeah, conversation with Dick Gregory? I have not been there for I have not been there for years, but I realize I remember how fun it could be. Right. Remember when CC was pretty good at hockey? My golf coach at CC was Jeff Sauer, the CC hockey coach, one on yeah. coach at Wisconsin. I know you know a lot about Wisconsin too. Remember that yeah. guy? Yes, I do. We would go play golf at his country club and charge it up to put it on Coach Sauer's tab. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you, you, you approach these school shootings. We got to get back to that. It, it, yeah. Because your dad also, I mean, he was a high school guy. You must think yeah. of it in that context, too. But what lessons emerged from Columbine. Uh, I well, it's, had, been, it's been, tw it's been yeah. 23 years, and I thought we learned some things. I'm yes. watching the TV this morning and mm -hmm. becoming more exasperated oh, boy. and more angry because we thought we had learned lessons from Columbine. Do you remember how long the, the protocol at the time, Columbine unfortunately started, was, was at the forefront of the school shootings happenings and uh, uh, both chronologically and, and, and uh, prominence. And we... We're, at the time, the, the protocol was to secure the perimeter until the SWAT teams could go in. And you remember, I don't have the exact chronology in front of me, but you remember it was hours before they went in. And It, in, it in was way too slow. I was in DPDHQ on a case, and I saw guys rushing out. A lot of the Denver cops had uh, children at Columbine. They went there to get their kids, kind of like these people in Uvalde. It was way too slow. The lesson of Columbine had to be, you just go in. And now to hear this bullshit, we thought he was barricaded. Yeah, with an AR-15 and these kids, and he's already been shooting people. you got to go they could, in. They, they could have and did say the same thing in Columbine. The shooter, the, shoot, the killers, the punk killers, shot themselves in the library relatively early in the chronology of what was going on outside the school that day. And the, the two SWAT teams went in and, you know, even Patrick Ireland, who was shot twice in the head and once in the foot and uh, made the courageous crawl across the library floor to drop out the window into the hands of SWAT officers. And he crawled past and he didn't know it at the time, but the two killers had shot themselves and they were already dead in the library. So all this time and, and the the the, uh, the disgraceful wait to get to Dave Sanders was one fortunate unfortunate aspect. Now it's easy to take shots and I'm not do, uh, so to speak. It's interesting. It's easy to criticize now years later that response, but we didn't know it at the time. I mean, we, we, we used one positive, one positive result stemming from Columbine could have been learning how and was learning how to deal with it when it unfortunately inevitably happened other places and I thought we had learned all this, but the folks in Texas bungled this badly, not letting the the, the uh, Border Patrol tactical officers right, but, but go they, into this. They, they were scared. I mean, come on. It's, it's well, the, well, the police told them, the, the local police told them not to go in. And they, right, they were told they were to rob guns. elementary. Yeah. But the special, the special agents arrived much earlier than we thought originally. And uh, they were not allowed to confront the gunman for nearly an hour. And so by the time 
he had barricaded himself in that room, and we don't know the exact the exact timetable of when he committed when he when he committed the murders, and and uh, so we don't know that. But but I do know they didn't. It was it was just inexcusable and, and intolerable that they went and they took so long. And the Columbine thing that day, I know the officers outside, whether SWAT or regular uh, law enforcement officers, were chomping at the bit to go in, and they were told they couldn't go in. So the the officers waiting outside had no culpability in the intolerable delay at Columbine. They were doing what they were told to do. And we just didn't know any better. So 23 years later, I thought we we had known. You know, there's a Frank DeAngelis uh, Center for uh, for studying and bringing in bringing in officers from around the country to to uh, go through kind of re- uh, rehearsal of school incursions. It's in uh, Denver, Weaver Ridge. I've been to it, but I don't know exactly what what municipality it's in. But and there's a picture of it on my uh, in my Twitter feed that I put up. Just a little while ago again, and so that that we've studied, we've tried to make the tried to make some judgments and about what how we should confront school shooters and respond to school shootings. And I thought we were past the passive stand outside. Uh, you know, there the justification of that he might start shooting people again and and all that is is understandable. It's what they heard at Columbine. It's what they've heard everywhere else, but I think we've learned the wisdom uh, that their lives have been actually saved by prompt, aggressive response to other places, and that's what should happen in Texas. I, I don't know. I won't pretend to be omniscient here and pretend to know how many lives it would have saved, but I, I would like to think that's still the, the way the protocol should be enforced and, put, and implemented nowadays to be aggressive and going quickly. Right. We are recording this Friday midday. They had the head of Texas Department of Safety giving a poor presentation, in my mind. He did not have direct knowledge. He's not a good speaker. And already the damage has been done. Greg Abbott on down. They misled us. They tried to pretend there was a brave confrontation. Cops did all they could. And uh, I think, Terry, you've articulated, well, there's a Columbine rule. They failed. It was really the commander who held them back. It's got to go to the top. And in Columbine, it was cover your ass. John Stone, Dave Thomas, the DA. Dave Thomas, who I worked with for many years at the Denver DA's office, gives me no pleasure in saying that they tried to cover up their prior contacts with these two miscreants. There were red flags all over the place. little stricter prosecution would have had them in the system. Who knows what would have happened? John Stone actively misled. He was the sheriff of Jefferson County. And some of that has again been repeated in Texas after all these years. It's just sad and it it, it causes you to lose confidence in the government, doesn't it? Well, you, 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 you do know that at Columbine, though, as I try to emphasize and I'll emphasize again, most law enforcement officers... Yes there that day wanted to go in. Right, I know. We're, we're they were held they back by John Frank, Stone's Frank Right. Frank DeAngelis was outside seeing what the heck's going on. Right. They're asking him do you, they're asking him about specific floor plans of like vents and uh, those types of things. And that at that time, that's we just didn't have those things. We just didn't do it. And so we've learned since to have plans of schools and 
Exactly. Can I just say, routes. yeah, I, I need to read your book. Frank DeAngelis was a hero he was that day. He's been a hero afterwards. I admire him greatly. He showed great courage. You know him well. Patrick, he stayed there 14 years. I know. 14 years after that. I would like to think in the, uh, I would fear to think that in the social media age and everything else, Frank DeAngelis would have been so hounded that he would, be, would have been unable to continue and they would have made a stupid decision to house him as principal at Columbine before he retired after in 2013 or 2014, I forget which. So he he stayed and showed great courage staying there. And he's now he's he's now being a leader and speaking out about the process. And his book is rather eloquent. And you, yeah, you should get it and read it. I, I, I can't take looking at these little kids killed in Uvalde. And it broke my heart, Columbine. But one kid I'll never forget. Patrick Ireland crawling out that window. The boy in the window, as you put it, please tell me he's doing okay. I admire he's, his he's courage. A, he's a financial planner and doing very well. And uh, physically is is, is uh, doing fine. He's married and a father and is doing very well. So what are the lessons, Terry? It sounds like we're preaching to the same choir we need background checks. We need red flag laws. You know, I had Zach Parrish's widow on backing that law, but a bunch of Republicans stood in the way. We finally got it passed, and they said, oh, it's going to lead to a parade of horribles. Has not happened. Show me a case. And they, you know, it's kind of like Barack Obama. If he gets elected, he's a radical. No, he isn't. He's a regular guy. You know, time proves these things out, right? So, well, Yes. Well, you 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 know the killer in Texas had just turned eighteen and was allowed to 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 buy an AR fifteen style two, two, on, two on a AR fifteen style right. weapons, and that's that's uh, that's intolerable. That's just that's just ridiculous. Makes me mad even thinking about it. We made some. You were you were discussing some of the some of the attempted. At, Attempts to legislate progress and reasonable gun control laws, both in Colorado and federally, but they have made some progress in a little bit of in uh, like the gun show stipulate where you can buy at gun shows and how you can buy at gun shows. But I think you remember that the killers at Columbine had a T a Tech DC nine semi-automatic that they had bought from. Uh, someone who was introduced to them by a mutual friend that the, the guy who sold that to them was the only one who did time in any of this. It was, and it was probably a little bit unfair in my opinion, but they also had that nine millimeter carbine, a sawed off 12 gauge shot, pump shotgun and a sawed off double barreled shotgun that they got at the Tanner gun show under a just disgustingly lax standards at the time. Uh, they were 17 at the time. But they had a they had one of the, a, a female friend who had just turned eighteen buy it and pay cash from two separate dealers at the Tanner Gun Show and it was really obvious she was buying it for the two seventeen years old year olds and was allowed to buy it buy them she said later that she if she had been subject to any scrutinization and had to fill fill papers fill papers out and a questionnaire out or anything or gone through anything at the gun show, she would have chickened out and uh, the kill cutters would have had to find another way to get those, those weapons. And so that, that was disgustingly lax. The gun show sales have, this is the only small element of progress we can claim. And the gun show 
sales at gun shows have been tightened considerably since then, but that it was too late for the Columbine victims. There's still that gun glorification. I worked at a radio station, Can you ask, that would not take casino ads, sports wagering ads, ads involving liquor, but oh boy, the Tanner Gun Show or Gunsmoke or Centennial. I, I, I advertise for a lot of people, and I still have great advertisers on my podcast, but I refused uh, entreaties from gun shops to get involved. I want no part of that business, and I'm sorry... John Caldera, every time you host a show, you got to say the Independence Institute is financed by the NRA and gun groups. Don't you think, Terry? Yeah, and uh, it's interesting that the Texas Governor Abbott is is not going to the NRA convention. Uh, but it's still it's still going on and it's still, still has way too much power. And I, it's just disgusting that, that our lawmakers are so afraid of them. And also willing to take their money. Well, I learned my lesson that special session when I worked with Punch and the NRA opposed us. Tried to do anything to avoid limitations on selling handguns to kids. We had to fight it. Eventually, they said, okay, we'll make it a petty offense. No, I said, bullshit. It's going to be a felony. You can't give guns to kids. And we established that principle. So what's so hard about that? Anyway, well, here's here's my stand. It's pretty much after every shooting, we say, you know, whether it's at a grocery store in Boulder or schools or anywhere else, we say, well, it happened. It happened again, again, and then we go through the same, the repeated litany of of uh, observations about gun control, and and nobody uh, nobody claims that gun control or tighter gun laws, however you want to put it would be the panacea and, and take care of this completely. It would. I understand. But I'm not pretending that it would. I just, I'm of the exasperated sect that, that is saying we've got to do something, period. I don't want to have to go through and go line by line in a law and, and, and discuss and theorize about its impact. Uh, whether it would take care of the problem or not. I'm just saying we've got to do something. Right. You don't need, and and above all, you don't need an AR. The assault rifles, the assault weapons is really the uh, most galling thing about it all. I mean, that we, you don't need an assault rifle made for warfare or anything, something else in in everyday life. That's the uh, framers of the second amendment hadn't, we're not looking at it in that context. Not at all. And in fact, when I went to law school, we regarded that language, well-regulated militia, as impactful. Why did they put that in there? But then you had the same justices who eventually are now going to overturn Roe v. Wade say, no, everybody has a right to a gun. You can't interfere. And why do we have more mass murders than any other country? It is the guns. I admire Kyle Clark, who's going to be a guest, I think on my episode 100, this is episode 98. He took a bold stand this week saying, it is the guns. He's agreeing with you and me, of course, we like it. But I think that guy shows courage. What about you? Yeah, I do. And I think it's a stand that, that uh, a lot of in the media are taking, of course, and uh, it's being viewed as some sort of proof of prejudice or bias, which was that's the tough part that makes me most angry. I think we, we should be able to separate issue by issue 
and don't turn everything into a political litmus test and to use common sense from issue to issue. I don't view, I, I'm, I guess I'm so naive. I'm so naive and so, uh, I'm just so naive, I guess, that I, I don't believe gun control or reasonable gun laws should even be a political issue. It, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be red or blue. It, it needs to be common sense and looking around what's happening to us as a country. And I, I just don't want to get into those tiresome debates about whether, well, in, you know, in Chicago, they have the tightest gun control laws in the country and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like we have we have these scripts, both sides. We have, and I'm probably reciting from some of it, we have these scripts that we just pull out of the drawer or we look up in the computer whenever something right, happens. But, but Kyle, that's what I loved about Kyle. He had the data. He said it's, it's data. It's our country has this many mass murders. Mm-hmm. We had an assault weapon ban. We had this many mass murders before. We had this many afterwards. We have. He, he went to the facts. It's indisputable. We've got a gun problem in America. Yes, we do, and he's right. Do you think there are other issues that are really beyond dispute? Just as a tangent, because I talked with Chris Vanderbeen, I'll talk to Kyle. COVID, it interplays with sports. Um, do you think the NBA, the sports leagues were right to mandate vaccines? Are yes. you? I tell my kids, I'm a conformist. When the health professionals tell me to take vaccine, I do it. Then I get the do booster. You remember, do you remember getting polio vaccine? I'm of the generation when we had the sugar cubes and nobody seemed to find that as problematic. And uh, I I just don't understand the mentality of the anti-vaxxers, but but I I guess I would think you'd you'd understand it because you're up there in northern Colorado a lot. I mean, Weld County, you already brought it up. There are parts of the country Dan Kaplis, who may be a guest on episode 99, he's saying there's going to be a midterm variant. Like the Democrats are trying to manipulate COVID. It's all a conspiracy theory. Really? Come on. I mean, what's up with that? You hear the skepticism that it's all political. And then what about the big lie? Speaking of Trump and the source for this kind of bullshit, you know, do you think it's okay for the media to say, no, it's, it's a disproven theory. Take sides on that. You well, know I, think I, mean? most have, I think most have, you know, in, in reputable media circles. The problem is now kind of the, the combination of show business with news. And, and it, you can see, you see that on MSNBC as much as you see it on, on Fox News. I mean, it, we've gotten away from the quiet, objective coverage of the past. And, and, you know, we can sit here and say, gee, we like MSNBC's take on various things, but they, they're they uh, just as, quote, biased, unquote. I, I find it acceptable because I agree with most of the stances and the attitudes expressed on MSNBC or even CNN. But I, I think we're, we'd be naive if we didn't acknowledge that there's, there's uh, now bias all across the board in uh, media. Uh, and I, I hope really, I hope you're not talking about Nicole Wallace because I think I love her and I've told my wife. Well, this she, too. you know, her her background is is a, is as a conservative actually, right. and I think she, she's uh, probably more of that woe school that, that uh, I am a member that I espouse 
then uh, sometimes you get the impression that right, but she's she's bullish on destroying the big lie before it destroys America, and I say you go, girl, because to me that's there's only one side that's right on that, and to me it's a plot against America. Do you take it that far? We'll go back to sports and all of that, but it animates this podcast. I'm looking forward to the January sixth showing. I just hope there aren't a bunch of distractions and that it breaks through to some of our friends who still support Trump. I have friends who support Trump, and I, you know, I'm, I'm mystified why, but they're entitled to their opinion, and uh, I think we should move forward on a united basis and, and try to put some of this in the past. I think we're seeing a little bit of disowning of Trump, even within the Republican Party regular regular uh, machinery now and I, I think that we will get to the point where I, I certainly hope we can get to the point where there are reasonable and pragmatic and and compassionate responses from both parties as we move forward and we're able to get together and have a dialogue instead of dueling monologues and uh, the playing out of lines from predictable scripts. Let's move forward to the topic of Colorado media, a field you know so well. Uh, you were there for the heyday of the Denver Post. Wasn't it great when the Rocky and the Post were throwing haymakers at each other? <laughs> Society benefited, and I think we're lucky that we got to experience that. Me as a consumer, you as a participant, and um, I feel bad that people these days don't get to witness that because it's sort of like the court system. Let's have an adversary process and the truth went out, right? Well, uh, I'm in the rare position. I think there are many of us, I, I should say rare, because there are many of us who worked for both newspapers. The Rocky Mountain News I worked for when I was in college. And I'd actually worked for the Sentinel newspapers when I was in high school. So I got an early start here. But but uh, it was really good for everybody when we had two daily newspapers. You know, the, Craig, uh, there was this thing called a newspaper that was printed on paper, and you put it in your hands, and you, like, turn pages, and you read. It was, it was called a newspaper. Uh, I would bring nobody... the Sunday paper with me to the Bronco game, East Bleachers, and I'd read the paper during timeout. Some people say, what yeah. are you doing? But that's – and, you know, I had – the roster right there. I had everything I needed. I brought the Rocky and the Post. But the motivation uh, of newspapers in those days, the competitive newspaper war aspect of it, was very energizing and, and a very positive force for everyone. Uh, we, we were working on behalf of the public with, but in a newspaper war where, where it was good for everybody, the energy that was involved, the ambition that was involved, the expenditures, frankly, that were involved by both newspapers. I think it was 2009 when the Rocky Mountain News announced its folding, when Scripps Howard, or I think it was Scripps Howard, gave up on it at that point. I think they were still involved. And the joint, oper- a joint operating agreement went out. I had some people at the Denver Post react as like, wow, that's great. We won the war. And, and we won the war in a sense if only one newspaper was going to survive. Uh, it was good and it was a win. It was a win for the Denver Post. But it was bad for consumers. It was actually bad for journalism and journalists in this market because of the uh, the lack of, a, uh, of ambition that has been prevalent in a lot of ways since uh, you get into ownership issues now with the Denver Post. But uh, 
that's you know, that's for another day, and I don't even want to no, discuss that. No, I covered it when I did afternoon drive, Dan and I, and we'd have Dean Singleton on, and he said, well, it's coming for radio, too, and damned if it didn't. Now people go well, on the radio he, for next to no money, and the bottoms dropped out on salaries for important professions like yours. And Denver oh, was a better mean, place for me, the court system— it's good for two newspapers to have their eye on what's going on. That's how you do better as a society. So now that it's See, gone, it's sad. But that's from a mainstream media point of view. The traditionalists, which we both are, I think, traditionalist mainstream media point of view. Uh, contrarians will point out that there are more sources than ever to get your news. Uh, you know, you put the. I'm looking right at my wife's laptop on the. Uh, on the kitchen alcove table, you know, that's where you can read, you right. can, you know, I'll go to my den in a minute and I'll see it there too. We have so many outlets for, for, uh, for getting news and for getting opinion and varying from, from the uh, entirely credible and intelligent to just moronic and counterproductive. And so, uh, there, there will be people who tell you we've had, we have more outlets and more opportunities to get our news than ever. And in some ways it's true, but if you, if you take a step back to the traditional viewpoint of print newspapers and even going into the online newspapers now, uh, that, that we, we've taken a step back. Denver Post, on a 1 to 10 scale, when you were clicking all cylinders being at 10, what are they at these days? Uh, seven. I think the people there, I still have friends there. And I, I think it's wrong to kind of lump them in as uh, – as part of the de degeneration or slippage of the business. And, and I'm not even going to mention the general post specifically in that. It's just part, it's part of the business. We've seen layoffs. We've seen cutbacks. We've seen sales to people whose heart really isn't into traditional journalism or the news. And so, you know, that's all part of it. the people who remain in the business are committed professionals. And uh, so I, I, I think there's still quality work being done in the newspaper business, both both in print and online, and so I'm not going to stomp on that with both feet. I think well, let's there's, throw still out, great, there's, yeah. there's still there's still great people doing great work. I totally uh, agree. But let's throw I, out compliments, I, and let me ask just one leading question during this interview. Don't you think the Colorado Sun, as a news outlet, deserves a nine or a ten? They don't do yeah, sports, I, but we do almost. Yeah, I do. I else. like Kevin Simpson, yes. for example, who is a tremendously gifted pro who I worked with when he covered the Nuggets and I covered the Nuggets for competing newspapers. And I think we were both, you talk about the competitiveness, Kevin and I were very competitive, but we would, we would, we were good friends and trusted each other as we covered the Nuggets, for example. So he's at the Colorado Sun and there's a lot of people at the Colorado Sun doing terrific work. I think the Denver Gazette, you know, although I think, you know, it's political leanings uh, is, is doing good work in the Denver market also. I like Wayne Logerson. I have to get him back on. Yes, I I used to admire Philip Anschutz more than I do now. He's involved in the sports world. Let's do move to the sports world. How many Walmart heirs are going to own uh, Denver <laughs> franchises? And is that a problem? I think so, since I've had to watch the Nuggets on my computer for the last three years, and I think I've been doing something illegal. Well, as you know, technically... Well, that's that's a fight between two between a mega 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 corporation and mega billionaires, and so I find it hard to kind of like jump on one side or the other with both feet. But 
it, it's intolerable. It's, it's it's baffling why Stan Kroenke got into that got into that. I mean, this is an argument over how much Stan Kroenke will accept from Comcast to put altitude on Comcast. It's not the other way around. It just it just exasperates me when I hear people talk about well uh, when people talk about it, the negotiations are over how much Kroenke, KSE, and Altitude pays Comcast to put the games in. No, it's the other way around. It's Comcast paying for it's Comcast, Comcast paying for carriage of the mm-hmm. uh, Altitude sports. And so I don't understand. The part that I don't understand about it is, is we're seeing kind of fans frozen out for three years, the, the, the dilution of a potential new generation of fans not being able to watch the games on television, although you and I both know the ways you can do it. And we do it anyway, without commercials, by the way. But in this case, it's right, it, it, and we get a we get absolute, a we get a wide truck. He shoot that uh, backwards half court shot too. That's cool. <laughs> it's, but it's it's exasperating, and it's, it causes anger yes. on the in the front of the fans. And I don't understand why Stan just didn't just tells me make the best deal you can, get as much as you can from Comcast to put the games on. Maybe we'll you know balk for a month of a the first season three years ago. So, and can I suggest an answer? Can I suggest an answer for Stan? Well, no, but then he, they he, he doesn't care. I know, but, but they could have said, we'll take the best offer we can get and consider the, the diminishments in fund in payment over the previous contract to be an indication of, of the evolution, the evolving of the, of the sports rights market and the uh, regional sports networks. The regional sports network model is uh, in trouble in part because of the uh, power plays from the, the major carriage, the major cable companies, the carriage. And so uh, he, he just, I think in my opinion, he just needed to accept that that market was changing, that he wanted to have his own regional sports network. He had to accept those changing conditions and make the best deal he could as a loss leader, even even if you look at it, and I heard this argument used by KSC people that, well, we were getting $10 for the hamburger, and now they want to pay us two, and we can't continue to make hamburgers for only $2 per hamburger. That's the argument they use. Well, in this case, I think you had to look at it and use it as a loss leader and say, this is for promotions, for getting our products in front of the public. Uh, we'll see. We'll see a positive effect in terms of ticket sales. We'll see a positive effect in, in terms of sale of souvenirs and, and memorabilia and everything else. And that was the way to go about it. All right. Well, we're, we're dishing dirt on him. But let's rate Comcast on a 1 but, to 10 but, scale. But, I'll give Comcast a 2. But we have Comcast and, and as, a, as an actual home outlet, as, as, as a cable service. Cable network, we're, we're very happy with it. It's just these are two separate. But it costs it costs so much money, and uh, I don't know. I just don't like Comcast. Maybe it's because I've litigated against them. Let's go to the actual sports and the one that you seem to know the most about. Unless you want to keep going on this, do you predict a resolution? No, no, no. Just the only thing I was I was going to say is that uh, I think the longer this go, is not resolved. And, you know these uh, these conferences get settlement conferences keep getting pushed back. The longer this isn't resolved, the the absolute dizzying revolution in, in such things as streaming and everything else is is going to change it. 
So it's 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 almost like Comcast is just going to throw up its arms and say, say that's enough. We're just we'll just give up on the, on the possibility of actually needing to carry out the sports network at all. Right, and, and I, 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 I they've I, sort of done that. Yeah, but, but people will give up on watching the Nuggets. I do because we have the MVP, and I going to watch him his whole career as much as I can. And with all due respect to Austin Rivers, who had a great tweet about gun control, yeah. I'm not going to go to my laptop to watch your, you know, uh, jab fake with your foot again. Anyway, so let's go to the abs because I don't understand what's going on. I have never seen such a momentum switch as I saw in game five. I had a pretty big bet on the abs winning in five that series pissed me off <laughs> I do it's, all, it's all about it's all about you craig well no but at least i i saw the momentum turn there's live wagering and i do partake of colorado sports wagering it's exciting it's fun i don't know if you do i don't know if you can being in the industry but i sure do i do, I do not i do not wager no in a except, except, except in casual, isolated circumstances, there's nothing that's that's uh, considered anathema anymore, in, in my opinion. So it, it gets in a tricky territory if you're betting on events you cover. You don't want to have your, that your bias showing. And the other thing is the uh, the need for or the passion for getting quote inside information. And if you find out that journalists are potentially uh, selling or uh, doing otherwise to hit inside information into the into the gambling community, that's that's where it will get sticky. And I don't I don't think we've seen any major instances of that since Congress allowed the states to set up the gambling themselves. Are there any rules at say Mile High Sports or any place you've worked about wagering? Do you think they have a rule now <laughs> at the Denver Post you can't wager? I mean, I've, I written, I've written about Nikola Jokic winning MVP, and I had him at 16-1 to 1 this year. That was pretty sweet. I think it's pretty much a, a winking part of the process now to understand that the media is not considered uh, is not considered in a blanket ban- banishment on, on gambling. I don't, I, I don't know that for a fact. I don't know what the policy is and the ethics policy at the Denver Post, for example, but I think well, virtually anybody – I think it's pretty well known that virtually everybody, anybody, virtually everybody, or at least the majority of riders involved in sports, place place wagers for social entertainment. And I'm being serious about that. I think that the uh, the positive of gambling is it's increased interest in sports too. The thing that really shocks me, though, I remember I was at the Portland I was at the Portland Oregonian when Oregon sports action was at two. Was it two dollars? I think your small. dog is saying, "Take the abs tonight." Yeah, uh, but I remember when uh, the NFL reacted with horror about two dollars sports action parlay tickets, like we were going to bribe uh, NFL quarterbacks to, to win a two dollar parlay ticket with uh, the profits of it going to uh, college sports in Oregon and other positive forces and. So, but now you can't turn around without seeing. I mean, you're watching the television, the sportscast, the actual sportscaster, broadcasters are showing their wagers, and it's it, it, it's just hilarious to me. We've gone from one extreme to the other. You can't talk about gambling. You can't acknowledge gambling. You can't gamble. Uh, it doesn't exist. Uh, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil about it, and now you can't get away from it. 
it's like we went, it was like this flip switched and it just went 180 degrees the other way. Except for uh, people who always wagered. I mean, I grew up in a family where my dad had a bet on every game on television. And is that why he was always going to the barber shop down at the corner? No. It, once Monday Night Football came on, it was unbelievable. And I liked a little of his action. I would call collect. I'd call for Homer Wade, and he'd say, Mr. Wade isn't here. He'll be back in seven minutes or whatever. It means <laughs> the away team got seven, and I said, well, I'll call back in 10, which meant I had $10 worth of action, and that's about how much I still bet. I'm still okay. a small player, but I have an opinion about things, and when I watched hockey, and it went into overtime, and they had the gambling promotion with the announcers talking about it. Look, FanDuel yes. has it at plus 120 or plus 130 for the Blues. And you're thinking, gosh, they have all the momentum. Why wouldn't you? They have the wrong favorite here in the overtime because I don't know if it's a robot or a computer setting the line. Do they take into account the momentum of the game? Because that was really a tsunami that the Blues put on the Avs. I mean, that kind of momentum switch, you see it in all sports. Oh, yeah. But hockey, it's unbelievable sometimes. Yeah, you are talking about game five the other game night. Game five, yeah, with the Avs seem to be cruising. To nothing, and, yeah. yeah, and then at the yeah. end, they couldn't get it out of their own zone. I thought this Kale McCarr is supposed to be so good. He looked he like... Is so, he is so good. Yeah, he, then he screw up on their last two goals. Uh, he, he's... I think I suspect he might be playing a little bit hurt that we will find after the playoffs when they tend to confess what's been going on. We will find out that Kale McCarr has probably been, been playing hurt a little bit. He crashed into the, the goalpost uh, earlier in the series or either that or the end of the national series. I forget which. But in this case, uh, you know, the thing about gambling, and it's, it's always been one of my pet peeves is people talk about, well, they're not getting any respect from the odds makers. The odds makers set the odds uh, directly in line and as a result of the money that's coming in. And they right. adjust the line to try to get the same amount of money on both sides of the proposition. So they're not predicting, they're not rooting. They're just trying to get an equal amount of money on both sides. They're balancing so, to take the vigorish, which is the percentage yeah, they get of all. And uh, I don't know, it's here to stay. If you look at that rank, you can see points bets got an ad. DraftKing has an ad. I don't know much about hockey, but I have been to a game or two. Nathan McKinnon, I think I understand why he's so good. He's kind of faster than anybody else, right? Nathan McKinnon, uh, his end-to-end -end rush in game five the other night to score a goal was one of the most thrilling goals I've seen in 40 five years of covering hockey and it was too bad that it ended up being almost a secondary element in the game you know and he said the right things when he's asked about well you know in fact i was the one who asked him about that goal uh, that it was spectacular because you at least uh take us through it or tell us about it and he said well it doesn't matter because we lost and then he very tersely said said uh, very tersely discussed it but he said you know it's no big deal because we lost. Well, the fact of the matter is that was such a great goal. He's going to be queuing it up for his kids years from now. It was one of the highlights of his career. But it became a secondary and secondary in stature after they was blew the lead and lost the game. I know it was for a hat trick. Everybody throws a hat out there. Now, 
Some of these ship hoods cost a lot of money. Do you get it back when they lose at the end of that? You threw no, your they hat. Get it back. You need to take. You need to take a uh, uh, a secondary hat, uh, a burner hat to the right. game, so you can throw the burner hat on the ice too. What, what do they fans. do with these hats? I think they give them away to charity. I'm not positive, but that's my that's my inclination. Shouldn't they you know, give, Dennis, shouldn't they give Mc... all the hats to Nathan McKinnon and let no. him decide? No, I don't think so. Uh, and I don't think they do that. Nathan's been an interesting story here because, you know, he was drafted first overall in 2013 and he was not billed as a generational player. Every once in a while, there's a generational player in hockey, whether it's Connor McDavid or Austin Matthews coming in. And when they're picked first, they're viewed as certain superstars, Sidney Crosby, for example, certain superstars, generational players, Nathan was used being from a draft year that didn't have those players. And he, uh, he has since developed into a generational player. He started out at age 17 when he was drafted. And so it really his maturation and his improvement has been something to behold here. And he's, he's become that rare example of a guy who was not billed as a generational player becoming one. And it's been, I think it's been exciting to behold. Sounds like Nikola Jokic, second-round draft choice, but he was more celebrated, obviously, Nathan McKinnon. And what do I know about hockey except what I learned from you? When did hockey get to be such a big part of your life? Uh, when I started the Denver Post in, in uh, late 1976, I was covering high school sports. I was the youngest writer on the staff by a wide margin. Uh, the staff had been frozen for a long time, and I was hired as kind of the bottom of the as kind of the uh, errand boy, almost, bottom of the totem pole, covering high school sports, which I greatly enjoyed. But in 1977, the sports editor was co- was doing a dual role of also covering the Colorado Rockies hockey team and trying to be sports editor. He realized he was just biting off too much. So he asked me, he knew I knew a little bit about a hockey that I'd grown up with the Portland Buckaroos in Oregon. My father had been a high school hockey coach in, along his long, long path. And I knew what color the blue line was, and many sports writers didn't involve then uh, were uh, the more traditional football, and, basketball, and, and, and baseball. Can mindset. you can you ice skate? I cannot. I had I had ACL surgery at age fifteen and seventeen, and uh, so I didn't take it up later. Uh, I've cross country ski. I don't ski. I did not play hockey, and that, but that doesn't mean I was not able to acquire some of the some of the aspects of the game. Right. Okay. You know, by so the way, you, you, you know, don't there, have there to... are a lot of you know, there are a lot of people who try to imply that hockey is brain surgery, especially the proprietary hockey fan who's it's my sport and it's my sport. And if you're not a ho- hockey first sports fan, you shouldn't be allowed in the building. And uh, the hockey fans are great, but they tend to be proprietary about it. And no other sport has that kind of attitude. Hey, let everybody above let everybody aboard the bandwagon. Let the general sports fan climb climb aboard the avalanche and hockey bandwagon. It, is, it can be a lot more fun. So you covered the Colorado Rockies. We lost that squad, but we got the Colorado Avalanche. You must have covered the Stanley Cup championships. Yeah, I've, I've covered both Stanley, Stanley Cup championship runs. I joined the post in uh, December of 95. And so it was late, late. It was that first season was underway, but I, I covered them both as the NHL at-large writer and as uh, helping out on the Avalanche beat for a lot of years. And so, yeah, I did cover both Stanley Cup runs. 
I covered all the high points of such things as the as the uh, Avalanche Red Wings heyday of the rivalry. I covered that, and I also the low point was is probably uh, covering the two championships, and then I but I also covered the Steve Moore Todd Bertuzzi fiasco. Well, let's talk about that because this Blues series has contained a little bit of violence, some of it inadvertent. Nas Kadri. What is he, a defenseman for the Avs? Took out He's Bennington. A center. 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 Was that a cheap play that caused him to injure the goalie? No. Or was it inadvertent? It was. He probably knew what he was doing in the sense he knew he was going harder than that. And every once in a while, there are consequences of that. But Callie Rosen, the defenseman for the Blues, who briefly played for the Avalanche, kind of re, re, uh, redirected his path, and he ended up sliding into the goaltender. Jordan Bennington, and uh, yes, Jordan Bennington is injured now for at least this series if the, if the Blues advance. I, but you know, the unfortunate aspect of this is uh, Blues coach Craig Berube referring to after the game to his, quote, reputation, unquote, and because he'd been suspended the year before for eight games during the playoffs for a hit on Justin Falk of the Blues in the first round, and so and he's been he's been in front of the the NHL uh, the NHL's vice principal's office many times uh, for for uh, for other incidents involved. So Craig Ruby said said uh, look at his reputation and let let it let it go at that. But then unfortunately it led to kind of intolerable in this age of social media where where, where largely anonymous threats can come or largely anonymous. Comments come the the the, the uh, reaction from St. Louis fans and others was just intolerable, uh, ugly, racist, disgusting, and the blues. Because Nazkadri Nazkadri is Muslim and he he's Lebanese and, and uh, he's from his family background is from Lebanon and and he's uh, he's a practicing Muslim and so some of the responses that brought that into play were just disgusting and the blues. In my mind, the biggest the biggest fiasco in all of this is the Blues not aggressively disowning and quickly disowning those those sin, responding in that fashion. You know, I think everybody, even Cadre, even Cadre, uh, brought it up and and made the point of saying that he understands that he understands those kinds of responses are not typical of St. Louis Blues fans, but it, it doesn't make it any less disgusting. And I thought the Blues organization could have been a little much more decisive and much earlier in responding and saying there's no place for this, knock it off uh, and disowning it completely. But, you know, in, in that sense, yeah, the blues started playing, going from being just a stupid team caught up in, in responding to all of it, to, to getting back to playing hockey. And so in that sense, it helped them get back in the series. I did watch Nas Kadri get personal revenge. What was it? Game four, in St. Louis, yeah, and then after one of his really slick goals, uh, a St. Louis Blue tried to knock his block off and just barely yeah, an missed. And and he should he should have been disciplined before intent because right. it was clearly it was clear he was trying to hit Connor. You know, and to be honest, I was with thinking of it as a prosecutor. That that was criminal attempt right there. He took a substantial step toward an assault toward the guy's head. And, and Craig, uh, that was the other thing I was going to talk about. You know, I've been involved in that, those Red Wings Avalanche rivalry heydays and and other things involved in the emotions of hockey. And uh, every once in a while, I get a little uh, embarrassed about 
our media participation and becoming kind of uh, become uh, oh, par- excessively partisan. And I think we saw some of that involved in the coverage of the Nazem Qadri uh, collision with Jordan Bennington. And, uh, you know, it's easy for me to say from Denver, Colorado, but I think I think that the St. Louis media and the Denver media, by showing the excessive partisanship, fueled the fire a little bit. I, I think it bothers me. Just to be frank, as a sports participant loving team sports, I don't like a sport where you can dive at somebody at their legs while they're running. That's why I think football is a little barbaric. And hockey, it, it isn't quite like that. There are rules, but then there seems to be a code that encourages some violence. You have enforcers, and it's a little bit of mobsterism. Basketball has it but not to that degree. But it seems to be acceptable that if you're going to mess with Nathan McKinnon, then our enforcer is going to bully you. And it just seems to be the code of hockey. And I don't know if that's a good reflection on society. You kind of do your own policing. I mean, how do you feel about it? It's a different sport. That stuff would never go in baseball, right? Oh, no, it does go in baseball. You see, Oh, with pitchers. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and when I was a catcher, and I knew when my pitcher was going to try to hit somebody. Well, I wouldn't name names. Um, but, but to me, you, the one thing you need to take great care about, Craig, is when you mention the code, you have to capitalize the C because it's a sacred premise. And I, I have been for uh, many, many, many years, have been a proponent of the hockey would be better, better off without fighting. And I have been able to enunciate the argument for fighting greatly because I've heard it so many times I have it down by memory. It's not completely illogical or uh, uh, completely unreasonable. It's about policing themselves on the ice and being accountable and sometimes uh, offering up a deterrent. And so I understand it, uh, but I think the game would be better off without it. And I I do uh, mystify sometimes by the tenets of the code that we saw most uh, disgracefully played out in the Steve Bertuzzi, Todd, mm-hmm. Steve Moore, Todd Bertuzzi incident in 2004, which uh, is still uh, a heavily remarked upon incident in avalanche lore. I, I think, I just think the code sometimes goes a little too far. I understand its, I understand its premise for accountability and even the reprisal that you need to answer the bell that, to take the responsibility for your actions. I understand all that. I just think the game would be better off without all that crap. Good. I agree. But it is getting interesting. And I love being able to watch a game with you. I feel like it on Twitter. You've been traveling with the team. You're in the press box. Any predictions? It's tough because this is going to air Saturday morning and the game's Friday night. But can they uh, have Craig, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell your listeners, if you're listening to this Saturday, uh, whatever happened Friday night is what I predicted. And, uh, and okay. just just so you know, that whatever happened Friday night is what I said was going to happen. Now, okay. this is Saturday. This is Saturday. I'm going to say what I think. Okay. I think the Avalanche will lose in St. Louis in game six. Then we'll all be panicking. Fandom here and the uh, sports media here will all be panicking similar in similar fashion to 2001 when the eventual Stanley Cup Champion Avalanche, a juggernaut team with future Hall of Famers, lost game six and five and six in the second round against the Los Angeles Kings, both by a score of one to nothing. The second in over in a double overtime, 
with Patrick Y in goal, which is a reason they were able to uh, hold L.A. to two, to one goal in those two, in, to uh, hold down L.A. And I think the Avalanche, and it was, so we were panicking, the Avalanche came back and won game seven and went on to win the Stanley Cup. I think that what's going to happen here is the Avalanche will lose game six in St. Louis, and they will come back and win easily game seven in Denver I love uh, on Sunday. On Sunday. Love it. I have a, pr- a prediction. Did anybody who reads Olympic Affair or do what I did is listen to it on Audible. That guy, Mark Mosley, does great narration. You are going to love it. And it's a Colorado book by a Colorado guy, Terry Fry, teaching us about a Colorado legend that I did not know that much about. Glenn Morris, decathlon champion, Berlin, 1936. And the creative Terry Fry takes that story, and he, I'm sure you researched the hell out of it. Well, very much so. You novelized it, and it's remarkable. It kept my attention throughout. I was savoring it at the end while I'm riding around Cherry Creek State Park. And congratulations, you distracted me, but you made me think, you entertained me. But it's really thought-provoking. Way to go. Well, thanks. Uh, Glenn Morris was raised in Simula, Colorado, went to high school there, went off to Colorado State, and uh, was a star football player and track man and student body president, actually. So he was not a dummy. He was uh, was one of the leaders on campus, a decorated athlete, decided to take up the the, the, uh, decathlon as the 1936 Olympics approached. He thought that might be his ticket to be able to go. And so he, uh, the the Olympic Olympic decathlon he participated in, I think was his third, the only, the third one of his life. I'd have to look that up. I wrote the book a while ago. I think it was was second. If I remember right, and you had Harry Hughes there, Hughes Field. Yeah. There's so many Colorado references. And, so, uh, so he went over to Berlin and was the second most decorated and uh, honored athlete at the 1936 Olympics behind Jesse Owens. And so it was a subplot going on. And uh, he, so he was participating in the Olympic decathlon. The name at that time, even more so prominently than we kind of casually refer to now, he was considered the best athlete in the world if he won the Olympic decathlon. That's what it was. Uh, that was the defining element of it. He won the decathlon, and uh, years later, he came back to Colorado State, presented them with the uh, oak tree that he was presented at, at the Olympics. And at the Olympics, uh, Hitler had watched him. He'd been much, uh, much admired around the world for his prowess and honored and was a worldwide celebrity and he came back and he came back he played tarzan in a movie but the most prevalent the most important thing about this is when i was researching uh colorado state university uh replanting that olympic oak because it had been kind of lost on campus and they found it this another tree from another gold uh, another gold medalist and so they moved they took part of that tree and replanted it at CSU a few years ago. And I, I was told, hey, this is a story right up your alley. So I went up and covered that process. And in doing the research to write a story kind of in advance of the ceremony of planting the oak tree on a CSU campus, I came across the fact that just notorious, disgusting, and exploitive filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl, who had been a, who had been an actress in Germany, too, before getting into the actual filmmaking process herself, 
had said in her memoirs in 1988 that she'd had an affair with Lynn Morris during the games and during the filming of the uh, documentary Olympia about the 1936 games. It was a remarkable, groundbreaking film, but he didn't lessen her her uh, toxic her toxic qualities. And so she, but she said, she said to Glenn Morris, basically, she she thought he would. It was the real deal. She'd have been involved in many dalliances over the years. She thought it was the real deal, and Glenn Morris was either going to stay behind in Germany or return to Germany. They'd get married, and they'd be making, and he would be a star actor, and they would make films. She, of course, had made the propaganda films uh, for the uh, Nazi regime, including uh, Triumph of the Will about the Nuremberg Party Congress. And so she was, she was toxic and known to be disgusting, but she made the, uh, she made the groundbreaking uh, documentary about, about it, about the 36 Olympics. But she said the interesting thing was she was one of the most powerful. She always got her way. She's one of the most powerful women in the world. She would be in meetings and she'd be the only woman in the room, but she'd also be the most powerful person in the room. But in this case, in this case, she admitted in her autobiography that she was just devastated when Glenn Morris went back, did not return, and, and it got married right away to his college girlfriend. She was just devastated. She'd been so used to manipulating people and getting her way that she couldn't handle it. So she was very bitter for Glenn Morris the rest of her life. And I ended up uh, do, doing all that research, documenting, finding out as much as I could about the affair and uh, Glenn Morris's life and involvement in those 36 Olympics and with everything else around it. He went on to be a, a movie Tarzan. He went on to like, he's uh, just falling apart and degenerating and dying in his early seventies. Uh, and now in his early sixties, I think he was 61. Right. right. Early sixties. Yeah. He died he, uh, in 74 and didn't even get to watch the Broncos big season. Yeah. So he, so, and then, uh, he was uh, inducted in the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame shortly before his death, but couldn't even get to the ceremony. But, but uh, so I, I decided to research this story, and I was originally thinking of doing it as a nonfiction story, following kind of the footsteps of my previous sports work, sports slash history works. And when I got done researching and feeling like I had found everything I was going to find out, I had a lot of dots that weren't weren't connected, and I had a lot of. Uh, links to fill in and i decided that the way to do it is let my imagination tell those parts of the story and i as i wrote i wrote it as a fact-based novel i could see it unfolding on a screen in front of me so i was basically writing writing a novelization of a screenplay that wasn't on paper in the computer it was in my head and so that's why it's a fact-based novel uh did you read the if you got to the kind of the post postscript explanation of my methods i'm not sure i think i ended when the book ended but maybe there was more that i missed yeah there there was a part at the end of the book about explaining my methodology and and how much of this true and how, how much of this isn't you know eric larson writes books that that for the most part are similar and is a reconstructed reconstructive history i uh, had him on my show for in, in the garden of beasts with thomas dodd the same character in your book right yeah speculative history i would call it but he he called it his books nonfiction, uh-huh. and uh, it, that he was allowed to do so and i wish i had just labeled this as speculative 
a speculative nonfiction book, and it probably would have sold. Well, I should have. But what would you put the percentage? How much percent actual fact? How much out of Terry Price's head? The outline of everything I attempted to make everything I could, as much as possible, make it true that I know happened. And I think you know, it's it's, uh, what I I despise the movies that say based on a true story Mm -hmm. or inspired by a true story or anything else. I I would say that this was this was just an attempt to fill in the blanks and uh, dot the I's and cross the T's with, with speculation on my part. And so I would say I would say it's three quarters. You know, I'm not saying the other quarter is not true. I'm saying that, I, that that was a work of my imagination and using the facts as as they were laid out. Well, everybody knows the ending. You kind of gave it away. I mean, they had this uh, toward affair. I mean, did, do you think that happened? Laney has kind of a version. Because uh, you took me to the Internet to start researching what's mm-hmm. true, what's not. And Laney did talk about the affair, but she had some facts in there that just weren't believable, like no. Glenn Morris. Uh, Fondling oh, tearing, tearing, uh, off, tearing uh, off her clothes. No, that didn't in happen. the Olympic Stadium or whatever, right? No, after his victory. Yes. And uh, no, that there were parts of it that were just completely preposterous and actually didn't hold up to scrutiny a bit by the timetable and the facts of the 36 games. But are you they, sure they, they had a dalliance? Oh, yeah, yes, absolutely. He had told several people about it in Fort Collins and said he should have. And in, in fact, at one point, he told his brother he probably should have stayed in Germany with Lenny. But that was after his life had completely gone into a downward spiral. He had been uh, unsuccessful as a movie actor playing Tarzan in just a horrible movie and tried several other things and just didn't work out. He he played very briefly, played in the National Football League for the Detroit Lions. That didn't work out. He was cut. And I was like, I for I want to say two or three years Whatever, however long it was, I'd have to look it up. When he was cut by the Detroit Lions, the Denver Post had like a three-paragraph story that didn't even mention his his Olympic accomplishment. Just said he was cut. And the guy was on top of the world. And as you read the book, and I was rooting for Glenn. He's the protagonist. And you sort of think, well, Lainey, maybe she's going to turn out all right. Yeah, Avery Brundage is kind of a villain. And... Boy, that guy he was a, he was that a horse's ass. Avery Brunch was an anti-Semite, and he was a horse's ass. And I think that's that's recognized now in the passage of time, including including the the issue of Marty Glickman and Sam Stiller's exclusion from the relay mm-hmm. team, pandering to the Nazi, to the uh, German and Nazi factions running the Olympics, the the local the local uh, Olympic officials and organizers. And so it, yeah, there were ugly things going on behind the scenes of those games. All right, that's what I need to know if it's true or not. Hitler and Glenn Morris, did they meet? Did they shake hands? Was he tricked into it the way you have it in the book by Laney? Gee, I don't know, Craig. So that's not a documented fact that he met with no. Hitler or not. I, I would have to go back and look at my notes, but no, it, it probably isn't. No, I understand. But the the cool thing, especially I'm a member of the Denver Press Club, you probably have your picture on the wall there. Um, 
That's right across from the Denver Athletic Club, 1325 Glenarm. I just went to the Damon Runyon dinner, named after a great sports writer, writer in general from Pueblo. He's in your book, too. Yeah, he and, is. And, you know, the Klan, I was just writing about this for the Colorado Sun again for the George Norland stuff. They operated 1325 Glenarm, that same block, John Galen Locke. A lot of history packed into that little uh, part of Denver. Yes, there is. And he, he, he actually represented the Denver Athletic Club in, in the lead up to in his time after Colorado State and in the lead up to the 1936 Olympics, including the Olympic decathlon trials. He was representing the Denver Athletic Club. And when he came back after winning, I mean, this is hard to imagine now, he had one of those parades down in downtown Denver that harkened that, that, that now we can look and say it was very similar to the Avalanche and the, and the Broncos parades after winning championships. It was just for Glenn Morris. It was Glenn Morris Day in Colorado. And uh, he was honored that way in the fashion of, of an individual returning triumphant. Well, your book's a triumph. And the main thing that goes through my head, Terry, is uh, you writing it. As a non-Jew, you wrote about Marty Glickman, and you have Glenn Morris wrestling with the anti-Semitism. You kind of think that maybe Lainey isn't like it. She's worked with Jews in the industry. But in the end, she turns out to be a piece of crap, an anti-Semite. And uh, that's the truth as well. Even though she fell for Glenn Morris and Hitler, and she liked him because he was white, they said this is the kind of person that we're trying to promote, right? And as opposed to Jesse Owens, you bring all of that out, but I'm just wondering, you know, why would a non-Jew care about a Jew? And and aren't there lessons in your book uh, for today? We're talking about Uvalde, but just a week before that, we had the shooting in Buffalo. I wrote about white supremacy. That's really at the heart of Nazi Germany, right? I mean, your book is pretty damn timely, don't you think? Yeah, I do. And uh, I thought so at the time when I wrote it. Uh, we have a proud Jewish wing of our family. And so I would like to think I've been enlightened a little bit on some of those fronts. But, but mostly it's I, I was raised to to uh, think correctly about about individual freedom and my father was one of the most progressive college football coaches of his era in a time. Uh, he, he integrated his coaching staff before anybody else did on the West Coast. He was known as a very progressive dealer. And I've heard even more so after he's passed away from his former players being very progressive in uh, the dressing room, in the uh, locker room, uh, in dealing with players and, and being very progressive and in all of that. And so I'm very, very proud of that. Uh, he allowed his players to pro- protest the Vietnam War, and uh, he took a lot of crap for it, especially because he was a World War II veteran. And uh, he pointed out when he was flying over tar- when he was flying over enemy targets at age 20, uh, he, nobody called him a kid and said he couldn't make his own decisions. And of course, he had to abide by military protocol in a lot of cases. But he understood about. Uh, uh, that's why he never called, and people made fun of him for doing this. He never called his players kids. They were always young men to him. And this is a roundabout way of, of saying that that uh, uh, I, I was brought up to, to be enlightened and to be open-minded and to uh, be tolerant. 
Well, I, I, I've been thrilled to talk to you. And the last subject I want to talk about is your father, because he was a big part of Denver Bronco history. And I'm a Bronco fan. Big time. And I remember when he got here and the contributions he made. He brought you here, too. Yeah, but he is. He, he's your hero. And I can see why. It's Memorial Day weekend. I'm going to dive into your other books. But put Memorial Day into context with your father. And uh, I'd ask who your heroes are in life. But it sounds like your dad filled the bill. Yeah. Well, I, I was very, like a lot of my generation, I was very a tardy and very delayed in, in asking my father about his World War II background. We had talked about it kind of on a loose basis. I was aware he was a reconnaissance pilot. Uh, he, he would, he would uh, continue to communicate with uh, his, his fellow pilots, the guys who shared the tent with him or in the 26th photo recon squadron over the years. But I didn't really sit down with him and uh, say, Dad, tell me about it until way too late. It was... Uh, very late, at four, it was actually four months before his death, I said, I was shamed into it by a Channel 9 story that they, they did on him. I helped Blake and Brian Olson do it, and, uh, and they did it on a Broncos Tonight show uh, late in, the, I think it was the 1999 season, and it was shown there, and he, they asked him, and I gave him some pictures of his flight, of his of his. Uh, World War II time and uh, him and his P-38 single pilot plane and uh, and all of that. And they asked him about things. And I, I, I said, I learned, I was ashamed to say there are some things that Brian and Blake Olson showed in the Channel 9 feature on him uh, that I hadn't known. And I was just disgusted with myself. And so, so I said, Dad, we're going to sit down and talk about it. And I hope everybody in their family who had a World War II veteran, especially those involved in combat, uh, got, got to sit down with him uh, on time and talk it out. And so I ended up doing a story of him, about him as representative on Veterans Day, not Memorial Day. And uh, and that got a lot of response. And it, this, this ended up being connected with my books in the sense that after that story came out and everybody was so responsive to it, and he had played his fresh, he played his sophomore year at Wisconsin in 1942, he played his junior season at Wisconsin in 1946 and 1947, uh, junior and senior year. And I realized he had the team picture on the wall, and it was full of glorious. It was a glorious season for the Badgers in 1942. I realized everybody in the picture had a story. And I had known that the star of the team had been killed in the Battle of Okinawa. And so I set out to find, find out about everybody on that team I could. And uh, it, that turned into the book, Third Down and a War to Go. Uh, two of the members of the team had, had died in the Battle of Okinawa. The co-captain had been in the Great Escape Camp, Stalag Luth Three, in Europe. And uh, I, I got to talk to him in San Diego, and he told me about what it was like to be in, to be a POW. And I talked to very many players of the team, including guys who didn't play much football but were on the roster. That's what our war effort was about, was, was uh, contributions across the board, talking to uh, – players on his team who had who had won the bronze star the silver star in service in both the pacific and the uh atlantic in the and in europe and so uh that ended up the book third down in a war to go and it's the one i'm most proud of uh olympic affair is my favorite book and, and i think it's probably it's probably my best book 
in some ways is the nonfiction combination. But I think third down a reward ago is the most emotionally rewarding for me. You know, the other thing, Craig, and I, I pointed out. That, that, I'll probably read that. How, how do you mark Memorial Day in the Fry House? We go to uh, Fort Logan National Cemetery, visit our parents' grave. My mother passed away also. They're both buried there. I, I've uh, routinely go out there on Memorial Day and Veterans Day and other times during the year and leave flowers. And that's how, and salute all the other veterans as you look around. And uh, I also rerun or replace stories that I've done about athletes who were killed in the war, who, who were killed in war over the years. Uh, I did a groundbreaking portrait of one of the two major league baseball players who was killed in World War II, Elmer Gideon. Elmer, Elmer Gideon and uh, I've written about many other athletes who who have, been, who have died in service? A lot of, a lot of it is connected to third down and a word ago. But so I, I, I mark it by reflecting on our father's contribution, reflecting on the, his teammates who were killed in action, and as I'm standing talking to you now, the, the the one player one player who was killed on Okinawa was named Dave Schreiner, who was a two-time All-American and the Big Ten MVP, and he. Uh, he and one of his best friends tackled Bob Bauman. Both were in the same unit on Okinawa, Marine unit, and they were both killed in action. And that's part of their down in a war to go. But I also had his family during the research process. Dave Shriners gave me the picture wallet that he was carrying when he suffered his mortal wounds on Okinawa. And I'm looking at it right now. Mm. It shows him and his girlfriend and his family. And it's just it's haunting and riveting. Think about the fact that he had, he had that on him when he was killed. He suffered his mortal wounds, so that's it's it's kind of a day of reflection for me, and and I also include it as the entire weekend. I would I would kind of consider Memorial Day having start started the day for me and carrying through Monday. I, I I'm gonna approach it with gratitude because my old man graduated West High School in 1944 and went right into the army and then boot camp got accelerated when the battle of the bulge went crappy and uh, then the guys turned the tide i know you, your dad you're talking about the pacific theater but it's all of a part such that yes. my dad and the army was assigned to oklahoma and texas because the war for the army was kind of over Thanks to the heroes who preceded him and the accident of when you were born, right? You and I are the yeah. same age, or maybe we would have been in Vietnam because older brothers of ours, we saw what happened, right? It's. Mm -hmm. But let's just end with talking about right now. I'm a little... I, I, I finished your book, Great Entertainment. I hope Olympic Affair becomes the best-selling movie. I, I think that's possible. What a story. And uh, so much of it is true. And so much of it is entertaining and interesting and apropos of today, but I'm worried about today because now i got to go back to thinking about Uvalde and uh, Ukraine and a host of other problems. Where are we at, Terry Fry? Are we going to get through this? I think we'll get through it. We always get through it. Uh, I'd like to think we'll, we will get through this, but it's, it's going to take a concerted effort, and it's going to, I think it's going to take a closing of the ranks and ceasing making everything white, red versus blue, and just put it, we, we've got to do something, and, and that's on several fronts that we've discussed and, and you, you've alluded to. 
and we just have to come together. I know that's trite, and I know that's sappy, but that's the way I feel. And I think at some point we just have to come together. And I, the, the, the polarization is unfortunate in my mind, and I realize it's very easy to pick one side. And, and I'm, I'm politically aligned, of course, to one, quote, extreme, unquote. But I think we have to not give up. Let's stop listening to only our own choirs. Let's listen to each other. Let's talk. Let's try to get through it. I think we need great leaders. And when you say come together, our song always have my troubadour on every show. And if we just start loving each other and realizing commonalities, and I think about the the Bronco Parade, the Avalanche Parade, people of different politics coming together. Sports can do that. And uh, I, I hope we've reached a tipping point with Uvalde. I, I, yeah. I, I, I I don't know what else. But we, but we always think we've reached the tipping mm-hmm. point. Every every time we say, every time something happens, we say, "Is this going to change things?" With kind of the implication of maybe we cross that line, maybe we'll start to get it. But I don't I don't see a lot of it going on. I mean, I've heard all this stuff before. I'm sorry, but I'm I mean, it's unfortunate that that all the sensible things being said in the wake of all of this is stuff we've heard before. And nothing got done. Well, and I don't want to be dour, but that means that maybe something worse has to happen. And we're talking about sports, and I worry all the time about an event at a big sports. We haven't had that. I don't want it to ever happen. But God forbid that needs to be the tipping point. If we don't do something now, it's kind of inevitable, don't you think? I don't know. I, I... I don't I, like speculating and putting things yeah, in nobody, nobody wants to speculate about any of this, but you would think elementary schools, that would be enough. We need to come together, and I think the media is a big part of it. I admire people who will stand up and talk about these things, and you are there. And uh, the reason you think Olympic Affairs is your best, I bet it's because it tackles some social issues. I, I think you dealt with it in the nuance that's appropriate. Uh, it's a tough topic, but you wrote it. I thought you found the right balance. And, and when you say come together, don't you think bigotry is a big part of it? And oh, sports, yeah, very much so. It's just like Nas Kadri and whatever. People come together on a sports team, Muslims, Jews, Christians, whites, blacks, Hispanics. That's the beauty of sports, right? In, in right. the modern era, and if we could learn those lessons and come together as a society, I just think we need better leadership. I bet Jerry Fry could have helped to accomplish it. Agreed right? and well said. You know, and on Memorial Day, I'll close with this. You know, I kind of view Memorial Day as, as appreciation for those who gave their lives in combat and Veterans Day as the day we honor those who serve. But uh, there's plenty of room to do both on both days. And in this case, the one thing I, I, I didn't tell you about my father that has been so striking as I've moved on, I've looked back at, I've looked back at his coaching biography. He coached at the University of Oregon for 17 years, but I look, but I look back and I remember at the memorial service held at Austin Stadium for him, where his former players came, uh, them looking at the clippings I had assembled about his his life and his past, and his players were just astounded. They had no idea. None that he had served in World War II as a P-38 fighter pilot. He never talked about it with him. He never told him about it. In the press guide and the media guide, both when he's with the Broncos and at the University of Oregon, 
especially the one at the University of Oregon said. Jerry played college football at, at Wisconsin in 1942, 1946, and 1947. Had uh, the wherewithal or the intelligence just to ask him, what, what, what were you doing in those three years, Jerry? Even when he coached against the Air Force Academy, the University of Oregon coach was a former P-38 fighter pilot in the U.S. Army Air Forces. And uh, that never became a part of the coverage. I think we've gotten to the point now where we've all realized how, how tardy we were in appreciation for the greatest generation, which was not flawless. It had its flaws. It had its problems. But we can be proud of his contributions in uh, warfare and its contributions on all fronts. What a great way to end a remarkable interview. God bless your father, the late Jerry Fry. God bless Dave Schreiner, who gave his last measure of full devotion to our country. God bless America. Terry Fry, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot more about you, and I like you even more. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate it. Ditto back and back at you. All right. Bye now. Appreciate it. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. 
Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. I hope you have a meaningful Memorial Day and wonderful barbecue, if that's your style. It is mine. Gather with your family. Love has a way to make us all feel better. Let's try to come together in the spirit of Terry Fry. This episode dedicated to Dave Schreiner, friend of Jerry Fry, father of Terry. I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we'll be back with episode 99, God willing. It'll be a summer, maybe not on the calendar, but Memorial Day, the pools are open. Enjoy. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.